Life Audio. Hello and welcome to Kainos Project. I'm Dale. I am Tamara. And we're here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. Well, I was scrolling through Twitter. As, as you I, often. I often do. Scouring the internet for things to be outraged about. That sounds exactly like who you are. Yeah. And I came across this news story. And it's the story of a girl who cried a river and drowned the whole world. But then after I read that story, I found another story. And it was about this college lecturer in the UK who recently lost his job over a tweet, which that is a story in itself. uh, But his employer found that tweet offensive. And uh, the lecturer's name is Dr. Aaron Edwards. And the school is actually a Bible college called Cliff College. Um, But the reason for Edward's dismissal from the school was actually a tweet uh, that the school found to be homophobic. And so this was the tweet. He said, quote, homosexuality is invading the church. Evangelicals no longer see the severity of this because they're busy apologizing for their apparently barbaric homophobia, whether or not it's true. But this is a gospel issue, by the way. If sin is no longer sin, then we no longer need a savior. So just imagine that I read that in a British accent. And just imagine all the weirdly spelled words like savior that has a U in it for some reason because that's how they do it over there. Um, And I checked, but uh, Cliff College is actually not LGBTQ affirming. uh, But my guess is that given there was a lot of backlash from this tweet. And so perhaps the tone of it, uh, they felt that he was speaking in a manner that they didn't want to have representative of their school and so they dismissed him like i said that's a whole story in itself but i actually wanted to focus on one particular line of this tweet that got me thinking and that's when edward says that biblical sexuality is a quote gospel issue now this is a phrase that gets used a lot in christian circles uh, particularly when we're talking about social issues that have theological implications but It's never really terribly well defined. So today, what I thought we would do is explore this question, what is a gospel issue? Is that a phrase that's even helpful? If so, are we even using it correctly? Uh, What is a gospel issue? That's what I want to talk about today, but we'll dive into it in just a moment. Well, good day to you. It's Joel with The King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith, and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. So when it comes to social issues, whether it's a legislative issue or even just a church polity issue, people are often quick to label it as, quote, 
a gospel issue. And it's a phrase that's been used a lot, um, but it's not typically very well defined. Um, But it generally refers to something that's really important to the person arguing that it's a gospel issue. And so some examples, I scoured the internet again and in search of gospel issues. And here are some gospel issues that I found in the wild. Abortion, racial justice, sexuality, young earth creationism is a gospel issue. Uh, Complementarianism, premillennial dispensationalism, religious liberty, forgiveness, mental health care, and creation care were just a few that I found. I think there, there are probably more if I continue to scour the internet. Sounds like just about every issue that you could possibly think of is a gospel issue. Right. And in my experience, people tend to use the word or the phrase gospel issue when they're speaking to a particular societal woe that they feel the church should be pouring a lot more effort or energy or resources into remedying. Um, and this is like an important question because evangelicals, like we are the gospel people. Like the word evangelical, the Greek root is evangel, which is literally means gospel or good news. And so um, that's kind of our our bag. You know, that's kind of our thing. Uh, So when this is kind of like my just experience of it, when we want to indicate that something is uh, important to us and important to our faith, and by extension, it's important to the mission of Jesus, we call it a gospel issue. And really what calling something a gospel issue seems to indicate is that that if you don't... um, understand why this particular issue should be at you know the forefront should be front and center then really you don't understand what jesus came to do like you don't get the gospel is really how the term seems to be used in a lot of different instances right because the person who is using this term uh to defend whatever is not currently being addressed is trying to wake up somebody else to the issue at hand. And oftentimes it's trying to appeal to the common ground of, hey, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian. Like, this is an important issue. And just saying it that way probably doesn't give them enough forward movement on the problem. So then they just chalk it up to, this is a gospel issue. So why are you not paying attention? And I imagine someone on the other end of that who doesn't know too much about the issue is filled with a great measure of guilt Oh, oh my goodness, this is a gospel issue. Why am I not concerned about this particular thing? But when we say gospel issue, what are we actually meaning? Like, what is the definition of that? Well, most people, I don't think, feel guilt when someone says something's a gospel issue. The most common response is that, no, it's not a gospel issue for A, B, and C reasons. Oh, well. Maybe for you, because you're you're more of an honest person, but most people response with respond with the counteroffensive of, no, it's not. This is not a gospel issue. I guess that goes to show you the difference in our, our two personalities. <laughs> I'm not saying I did. I'm oh, saying I don't. I feel I'm like you just tipped pe- your head. <laughs> I'm saying people do. Just people. You're not people, though. Of course. No, I'm a person. <laughs> My name is Dale. Um, oh. But really, before we can define what is a gospel issue, it makes sense that we have to define what is the gospel. And that seems simple enough, right? It does, but not. Everybody agrees in evangelical circles on what the gospel includes. Like there, if there are all these things that are true that are found in the New Testament, which of these things are part of the gospel and which of these things are not part of the gospel or they are results of the gospel, 
Um, they flow from a godly life or a godly view of things, but they are not technically a gospel issue. Like, where does the gospel end and other things begin is the question. And that's that's the question that not everybody agrees on because we don't have a common understanding of what the gospel actually is because we have different definitions for it. Yeah, and this is kind of unrelated, but sort of related. One of my very first um, biblical studies courses in undergrad, this professor was known for just being like one of the most challenging professors at my school. And day one, he said, all right, what is the gospel? I need everyone in this room is going to answer this question and you're going to stand up and answer it. I mean, it was my first year in college at all. And now I'm terrified. Like, I don't even know what the gospel is. And so everyone stands up and shares their definition of the gospel. And he would say, wrong, sit down, next, wrong, sit down, next. So uh, this guy really sounds like, I mean, he had a reputation and it became apparent why he had that reputation day one of the class. Um, I did not do well in that class, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, that was a retake for me. It actually was. I had to retake that course. How did you know? That was the only course in all of my like years of college I ever had to retake. Not the point of the story. Point of the story is very clearly exemplified in the varying definitions of the gospel for all of these like first year freshman students and the professor saying everyone was wrong except for him. Right. <laughs> You're all wrong. I have the one answer. Uh, that, that sounds like a pretty hostile environment. Gun to your head. What is the gospel? Well, different people define it different ways. There is kind of um, one camp that defines it fairly uh, narrowly. And this is kind of the group that wants to minimize usage of the term gospel issue to refer to um, important issues, uh, social issues that Christians ought to be concerned with. Um, if they want to kind of steer away from using the word gospel to talk about those things, they have this fairly narrow definition of what the gospel actually is. And just to give you an example of that, uh, I found an old article published by Crew that defines the gospel this way. Quote, it is one, the judicial act of forgiveness by God on the basis of Christ's death on the cross. And two, the result of accepting this payment, the impartation of new life on the basis of the resurrection, end quote. And so this was just a blog post written by... Uh, John Rittenhouse. So I don't know if this is like the official crew definition of the gospel or if it's just a blog post that they publish on their website. But it kind of gives you a um, an indication of what I mean by narrow definition because like Jesus died, he rose again. That's it. That's the, that is the gospel. If you put your trust on him, you'll go to heaven. Nothing else is the gospel. That is the, that is the only thing that's included. Well, and that's a really common understanding. I've been in a lot of different uh, evangelical circles where uh, they're very clear about this is the gospel and this is what we teach here. And even so far as this needs to be clearly communicated in every single sermon you ever preached, every single testimony you ever share, uh, every single portrayal of here's what Christ has done in my life, but also he was... Uh, God who came to earth in the flesh and died and rose again to forgive all of us of our sins so that we can all now get into heaven. Great. I just did the most perfect presentation of the gospel. I included all of the, in like all of the elements. Um, but it seems like there's some 
something missing still in that definition. Right. Yeah. So it's basically defined by answering the question that where will you as an individual go when you die? And the answer is, you know, obviously, if you put your personal faith in Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, then you will be given a place in heaven. And the outflowing of that reality is that you'll become a, a more pious and moral person personally. And so under that framework, the, the only gospel issue is the message of Jesus's death and resurrection. And um, so unless there's like a theological question about that, then it's not a gospel issue if you're defining the gospel this way. Right. There's probably not a whole lot within the daily routines of life that would fall under a gospel issue if you're only defining the gospel uh, through this um, justification. And and really this transaction between you and God is the way that it's often viewed. Uh, And just a side note of that framework of the gospel is that's a very westernized understanding of scripture and what even just Jesus's death and resurrection is this judicial transaction of Jesus taking on your debt, taking on your sin and wiping the slate clean so that you no longer have to um, serve the time that your sin would require of you. Like it's just very judicial in its language. Right. And it all centers on uh, penal substitutionary atonement. Um, but is the gospel, which is a really big word that maybe not everyone is aware of even what that means. We'll go back two episodes ago. We talked there you about go. it. So we are cross promoting different episodes of the podcast here. Um, but there are some other evangelicals who would say, no, the, the gospel is more than penal substitutionary atonement. And there's this one resource that I recently read. Uh, It's this little book called A Creative Minority by John Tyson and Heather Grizzle. Um, We'll link to that in the the show notes. But in that, uh, Tyson and Grizzle, they argue that in the 20th and the 21st century, American evangelicals, that we've we've actually been preaching something of a truncated version of the gospel message. Uh, And the problem is really rooted in the modernist fundamentalist debate. Uh, that was raging within the Christian world uh, towards the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century. And we talked about this um, a number of weeks ago uh, with the debate over biblical inerrancy, uh, which was part of this. But the, the quote, modernists, they were denying a lot of things found in Scripture. Uh, they were denying that they were meant to be taken literally. And so this kind of progressive uh, liberal theology, it really um, moved away from any kind of orthodox Christian teaching. And so uh, part of the fundamentalist cause, and originally that now that's a derogatory, when it was first coined, it wasn't. It was, evangelical and fundamentalist were kind of synonymous until those groups kind of split into two separate uh, ways of thinking. Uh, but the, the fundamentalists, they, their cause was to establish and fight for the fact that Jesus like literally lived, literally died, literally rose from the dead, and that that literally means something uh, for those who place their faith in him, something, something real, something tangible, not just some kind of spiritualized, symbolized kind of uh, whatever. Uh, but in that correction, there was a bit more of an overcorrection in that fighting for uh, those essentials that were under attack. In doing so, we kind of lost a bit of the bigger vision for anything outside of that. And so Tyson and Grizzle, they argue that uh, really we believe in half of a gospel, which is a pretty bold claim. But as they lay it out, it makes sense. So the, the half story kind of goes something like this, that you were born a sinner, uh, that you... 
uh, can have life in Jesus' resurrection by putting your faith in him. And now once you're converted, it's your job to convert others, to separate from the world, and ultimately wait for heaven. Conversely, they framed the whole story kind of something like this, that you were created in God's image. You know, take it one chapter back from Genesis 3 to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, that you were created in God's image, and then sin entered the world through the fall, that um, that you can have life through Jesus' death and resurrection, and now your purpose is to be a part of renewing all things to the vision of what they were meant to be before the fall, which includes converting others and maintaining a certain level of separation between the church and the sinful things of the world that would tempt us away from that vision of renewing all things to what they were intended to be. But another part of that vision is actually renewing things, to see uh, the kingdom of God break through in the here and now. And so to them, like all of that is the gospel, not just sinner bad, Jesus good, put your faith in him. When you die, you go to heaven. Like it's a little bit more expansive in that it kind of captures the entire biblical narrative rather than uh, Good Friday to Easter Sunday. Right, because it has a more holistic approach to the human life and the value of the gospel on the human life, and it not just affecting your your eternal future in in days to come, which we can't even fathom. Like, what does that look like? Right, we're trying to secure our place in heaven, which we're not really exactly sure. Like, what does that look like? What, where is it? How is that going to happen? What am I going to be doing? What, like, there's a whole lot of unknown in that future us. Um, but the way that the gospel is portrayed in a lot of areas is you are making a decision that will secure your eternal future. I mean, yeah, you're kind of on this road to sanctification now and being made holy, but that really just means you're a, a good moral person. And you, you make good choices as right. we tell our children, was that a good choice or a bad choice? Like I just keep making good choices. Um, and that, that misses the aspect of what we see from Genesis to all the way to revelation that Jesus is continuing to renew the here and now, and not just the, once you die and cross over onto the other side of eternity. Right, and so in this broader vision of what the gospel is that takes you really from Genesis 1 through Revelation rather than, you know, Matthew 26 to Matthew 28. Mm, right. Um, then in some ways, uh, like we said earlier, everything is a gospel issue. Like everything that is aimed at bringing about redemption and renewal could rightly be characterized as a gospel issue if that's how we're defining the gospel. Um, not in like a salvific sense, um, but in terms of it being an essential component of the overarching narrative or story that the gospel is telling us about, you know, who we are, our purpose, our problem, our solution, and our future, like all of those things, uh, if it's something that's bringing about renewal and redemption, then that is fundamentally part of what the gospel is, not in a salvific sense or even not in the, the fullest, truest sense of what it will be because the redemption that we experience prior to Jesus's return is a is a foretaste or a foreshadow of the fullness of redemption but that redemption itself and the redemption project is fundamentally not only a Jesus thing but so central to his mission that we could rightly say that it is a gospel issue but when you say that the thought of that makes a lot of evangelicals nervous 
And there is actually some historical reason for that that I want to dive into, but we'll do that in just a moment. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So if the gospel isn't just the death and resurrection of Jesus and personal faith in him, but it is actually this vision for God created the world as good, then sin entered the world that ruined everything, and then Jesus, by his death and resurrection, now has reconciled us to himself, but has given us this vision for redemption and renewal, which will eventually be fully realized, but this is the work that we engage in now, then a gospel issue is anything that brings about that redemption or that renewal, which is a pretty expansive list of both personal things with regard to our personal piety and morality, but also uh, societal things and community things that that plague us. Now, when you say that, a lot of evangelicals get a little bit uh, weirded out by that. Um, and there's historical reasons why that is. Um, even if people don't necessarily like know what those historical reasons are, they're kind of swimming in the stream in the tradition that has brought them to that place, even without you know realizing that that that's uh, where it's coming from. But going back to the modernist uh, fundamentalist debate of the 19th and the 20th centuries, uh, the the kind of uh, progressive ideas and uh, uh, theological liberalism, like. Those ideas didn't remain just like academic or theological because like part and parcel of the modernist movement was also this thing called the social gospel movement. And the social gospel movement, it was marked by like a pretty robust vision for social activism uh, to, to fight for things like social justice, economic justice, racial justice. Um, the temperance movement was part of this. Uh, just a lot of these very like uh, social activist uh, political projects uh, aimed at um, improving society. And this was all under the banner of seeing Jesus's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that all sounds great, but when you paired it with this liberal theology that kind of over-spiritualized things and took the literalism right out of it, uh, you what ended up happening is that you had this movement that was becoming pretty devoid of any actual proclamation of the good news of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins through, and eternal life through personal faith 
in Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And so wrapped up in the movement um, was really a tabling of the actual proclamation of who Jesus is. It's like, the, it's you know, this is a much maligned um, proverb, but people say like, um, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words, which I can get the sentiment of that, like you want to live a life that embodies the gospel. But in order to preach the gospel, eventually you're going to need to use words. Right, because the movement was more about let's show people Jesus and we don't really need to say anything about him because they'll connect the dots at some point, Um, which, of course, is rather concerning because there is a very real aspect of the fact that you need to talk about Jesus. You need to talk about the gospel and you need to talk about the difficult pieces of um, being a follower of Christ that aren't just um, like sunshine and rainbows and taking care of your neighbor. Like that's all very real. But then there's a real fact that sin exists in this world and that we are separated from God. So it seems like the sides are either you only preach that like (laughs) you are a dirty, filthy sinner in need of um, redemption and reconciliation back to God. Or you only preach the other side of um, Jesus just came to love you and take care of you. And here I am being an extension of that. Right. Yeah. And part of the um, reasoning behind the social gospel movement, it was this impulse for like the least of these, like to do the things that Jesus did to bring about healing and uh, restoration. But there was also a particular theological vision attached to it. Um. And it was this idea that it was an eschatological vision called uh, postmillennialism. And the thought was that if we could bring about justice and goodness to society, it would literally bring about the millennial reign of Christ. So in other words, uh, Jesus would only come back once we had remade our society in his image. Now, this wasn't what everybody believed, but this was a pretty... Um, pretty mainstream view within the social gospel movement. And so proclaiming personal faith in Jesus kind of took a backseat to social programs because to them, solving justice issues was a gospel issue, but actually in a salvific sense, like in, in that they believed that they were literally going to bring about the second coming of Jesus by virtue of uh, advocacy and social programs that were going to create a better society. Now, eventually the, the social gospel movement it it lost a lot of its momentum uh, after World War One and World War Two, um, because you know millions of 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 dead across you know two global wars kind of disabused people of the idea that uh, society was marching on towards progress. We were marching on towards utopia. That that was a foregone conclusion because you know it kind of seemed to them prior to then like you know like technology is improving. Um, Healthcare is improving. Um, our cities are improving. We have the industrial revolution. We're creating more things. We're um, able to do more good. Justice is improving. You know, with the abolition of slavery and eventually, you know, uh, uh, the end of segregation. Like it, there was this idea, kind of like that um, that progress is marching forward in a very linear fashion. Um, but then when you just um, look at you know world wars and you know after that you know whether it's korea or vietnam or any of the endless list of wars that have come after that people have been really disabused of the idea that 
we are marching on towards utopia. And in a lot of senses, some of the things that we thought were great advancements, you know, certain technologies or whatever it might be, um, have just as much potential for destruction as they do uh, the benefit of people, like nuclear technology. Like you can power something for 100 years or you can kill 100,000 people. Like, you know, and so uh, that's partly why that movement kind of the the wind got taken out of its sails and um, it really lost uh, momentum. And uh, post-millennialism in general lost a lot of momentum because it's like, well, uh, progress isn't necessarily that linear. And so that is something that's kind of moved to the wayside. However, in the midst of fighting against the theological liberals, a lot of fundamentalists who were the forebearers of what we would call evangelicals now ended up, uh, they, they not only argued against like the theology of the social gospel movement, but they ended up actually arguing against everything that they were doing, like providing welfare and fighting for economic justice and racial justice and all these other uh, societal projects that were bringing about good and redemption that said, you, you shouldn't be doing any of that. And so this is partly why uh, today movements towards like social, racial, economic justice are often viewed not only as politically liberal, but as theologically liberal uh, ideas in our own time. I mean, the, the logic kind of being like if liberals like these ideas, then they must inherently be bad. And so that's where we have today a lot of apathy from conservative evangelicals, not only because they've kind of bought into the, the, the political platform of the Republican Party, but on a theological level, there's a suspicion because of the social gospel movement, which kind of threw uh, death and resurrection of Jesus out the window and said, we're going to march towards utopia. And that ended up not being a vision that fully captured um, what the New Testament was conveying. And eventually it was disabused of its own ideals and kind of went by the wayside. Right. So now the the focus of Christians is to completely remove ourselves from as many social issues as we can because those are just issues of the world and government and politics and all that can take care of it. And it didn't work when not, they tried. Right. Yeah. And we, when, when they attempted to do it, it didn't work anyways. So as the church, these are just matters we're not going to concern ourselves with because they're not quote unquote gospel issues. Um where the other side would say, no, all of this is gospel issues, um, which we find ourselves now in the world of the fundamentalist side of saying none of this is really a gospel issue. Right. Yeah. And this has been we've kind of had our feet stuck in the mud on this for like a century. Like there was a, a book written in 1947 called The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism that it. It, it like addressed this issue specifically, and it it genuinely could have been written like last year, and it was written by a guy named Carl Henry, who is very much a fundamentalist evangelical. I mean, just to list some of his credentials, as I was like looking up his bio, uh, he was part of the founding of the National Association of Evangelicals. He was a founding faculty member of Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena. He was the founding editor of Christianity Today. He was also part of founding the Evangelical Theological Society, which is kind of like the academic uh, side of exchanging theological ideas uh, at the academic level. Uh, and all of these are like really important evangelical institutions to this day. And so when he wrote this book, the critique was very much coming from inside the house. Uh, 
Um, but what he, Henry argued was essentially that evangelicals, we can't let the failure of the social gospel movement steal from us uh, causes and movements and values that were rightfully ours to begin with. And that's because uh, while evangelicals would, in principle, say that they were for justice, uh, Henry says, uh, quote, that their opposition to societal ills has been more vocal than actual. So basically, in other words, evangelicals would say, yeah, um, we're for justice, but we can't change anything in society by social activism or by changing laws like people's individual hearts need to be changed. And that's something we hear a lot of today from evangelicals. But it's important to understand that uh, this line of reasoning it really came more from a place of an excuse to do nothing about the suffering and injustice uh, of, of other people, uh, while kind of sounding spiritual about it at the same time. And it's kind of always been this way. I mean, that's what Henry was arguing in 1947, that this is a problem that we need to address. And um, he had some effect there, but a lot of the, the, the tendrils of this are still remain within the evangelical movement. So Henry wrote this in the book. It say, he says, quote, There is a growing awareness in fundamentalist circles that, despite the orthodox insistence upon revelation and redemption, evangelical Christianity has become increasingly inarticulate about the social reference of the gospel, end quote. And the reason for that probably is because, as Tyson argues, that we have been trained to rehearse a definition of the gospel that really only tells half the story. So this narrow focus of what the gospel is, it's caused us as evangelicals to broadly uh, only be engaged in social issues that we can find a reference of personal responsibility for. So like abortion, like yes, ban abortion, um, or whether it be that or the influence of LGBTQ in society, we can restrict some of those ideas. But when it comes to these more, uh, you know, we're good at banning things, you know, that's, that's kind of our, that's kind of our deal. But when it comes to more like systemic issues, like poverty, racism, economic injustice, uh, we're far less articulate and conversant in that. And not only that, we're like far more suspicious that anything can or should be done um, about any of those things. But essentially, therein lies the issue with the phrase gospel issue. Uh, we don't all agree on what the gospel includes or even what it requires. And so um, we tend to bandy about this phrase uh, using our own definitions Um and the unfortunate thing is that we're often kind of like talking past one another uh, when we're doing that. So, Tamara, when it comes to this phrase, gospel issue, and the way that it is used or misused or misunderstood or used differently by different people, do you think the phrase gospel issue is helpful? And if not, what should we say instead when we're trying to convey what we're trying to convey? No, it's not helpful. <laughs> um, and the reason why is because of, I mean, what, the last however many minutes we've been laying it out is the the issues with this term. Uh, we all don't agree on the definition of the term. And so when you're using a term to try and 
uh, convince others or express why something is a gospel issue, but you don't even agree on the definition of it, then you're just talking past each other. So if we all can't agree on the definition of a gospel issue, then no, the terminology in and of itself is not helpful. Um, what other term would I use in its place? I have no idea. But the way... <laughs> but, <laughs> Say, here's your problem. I got no solutions. Yeah, I'm really good at that. I'm really Thanks good at finding in. all the problems and not giving you solutions. But I think it, it really comes from a different place anyways. I don't think it's about like, okay, then what term should we be using? Um, I think it, it really boils down to the fact that within the church itself, um, like in the New Testament, we see the body of Christ described as a lot of, um, like everyone has a role within the body of Christ, right? Like not everyone's a hand, not everyone's a foot, not everyone's an arm and a leg. Obviously the head is Christ himself. So no one is that. Um, but when it comes to what should the church be doing in terms of social issues, in terms of addressing things that are happening in our world, um, it might be that you're taking up something that your church should be taking up, right? Like maybe you look within your area and the issue of um, women who are constantly faced with the econ- economical reasons of why they should be having an abortion or just the family dynamics, like can your church be stepping into this very specific social issue that is plaguing your community, right? That might not be the same very real issue that's happening in somebody else's community out on the street, but they have something else that they should be uh, talking about as well. And so I think there's opportunity within the church to act as like the big C church and taking on different things that are very real within their communities. Do I think we can step in and take on every single issue as Tamara and Dale? We can't. And that is- We can try. I mean, sure. And fail. (laughs) Yeah. So, And I understand like the overwhelming sense of, well, there's not really anything that we can do, but then that really being a cop out for doing absolutely nothing when- the reality is all of the little C churches should be stepping into their community, looking at what is the issues here within this community. How do we step in with the gospel, with the truth of Jesus, but also an extension of his love and his care for that community? Um, so I don't know if that really answered any of your question at all, uh, because I know we were talking like just really high level of should we be using this term gospel issue or not? But I think it it comes down to the smaller aspects of what is the church itself doing? And then what are you as a member within that church doing? If you don't care about your community, meaning like your your literal neighbors, like the people who are struggling around you, then are you really truly understanding the whole gospel? Right? Right. And... So do we need to define it and say, well, my neighbor is really struggling to have food every day or is a single mom who um, is just trying to get her kids to and from practice while she's also working? Like, is that a gospel issue? Do we need to label it that way? Or can we just step in and help that person? Um, And in the process of building that relationship, then actually talk about who Jesus is himself. So they, they shouldn't be separated from one another. And to try and pull them apart and say they're two different things is missing everything that Jesus did in his earthly ministry. Right. And I think that that's the issue that like, how do we communicate and convey that um, it's not an add on 
to to do these other things that bring about redemption. Like if the gospel is just Jesus rose from the dead and so you need to preach that Jesus rose from the dead and you put your personal faith in him. And if you get to this other stuff, you know, but that's extra. That's not the gospel. That's, you know, it's, it's good stuff, but it's not the gospel. It's kind of giving permission to say like this is not central to who we are. What's central to who we are is like literally just the straight proclamation that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, but like, so how do we convey that the, the story is bigger than that and that these aren't add-ons? Um, I think we need to speak about the gospel when we present the gospel, we need to have a more expansive uh, like narrative for what the gospel is one. And to, to kind of, because then that, that in itself, it will kind of bring all these things more core to how we conceive of ourselves as Christians. Um, but you know, presently, and I think that's what the intent was when people start saying like, this is a gospel issue saying like, this is not periphery. Like this is an outworking of Jesus in our lives in a very central way. I just don't think it has been received in the spirit that it has been given. I was trying to think of like an alternate like phrase we could use. One I I was, I was thinking might be helpful was like, this is a kingdom value. Like if fundamentally we are preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And then once you have entered into that kingdom through faith in Jesus, what does it look like to live as citizens of the kingdom as we are living in a separate kingdom of Babylon on earth? And so if something is a kingdom value, it it is something that is core to what citizens of the heavenly kingdom would do. I think it's just maybe just another way to say it uh, that because that's just, you know, another way of saying it. like this is a gospel issue. Like this is attached to the story that Jesus is telling through us and through our lives. And so um, maybe because the, the term gospel issue is like so radioactive now that pivoting into that language might be a little bit more effective at conveying a similar idea that these other things like being a part of our community, like bringing restoration to our community or our state, our country, like that's not an extra. That's part of our witness that, that we um, witness to the gospel, not only with our words, but with our deeds, not only in our personal piety, but in the way that we have a transformative presence in the community. Yeah, and I think that's where it starts. Unfortunately, with the day and age we live in where people can just throw big picture ideas out on Twitter or write a book or write an article, um, a lot of the times it it is void of very real human interaction of a one-to-one, right? So what is that one-to-one that is happening around you? Like, sure, I can talk about... um, LGBTQ issues or abortion issues or or whatever that person was fired for in relation to his tweet. Um, Is that an active issue that he's facing every day that he needs to be speaking into? Like, Mm, I I I know, know. I know from the sake of our country, the, the topic is, is hot right now, right? Like everyone's talking about it. You're reading articles about it. Um, But sometimes I think we can get so swept away in these, big hot topic issues and we're trying to theorize the way that we should be handling them but then as an individual person are those actual issues that we're interacting with day to day there very likely are some communities where lgbtq is is their community it is around them all the time figuring out how to deal with the language around it with how to um, even present the gospel to it and all of that kind of stuff is real but 
there are also communities that that is not the number one issue around them. Mm -hmm. But yet that's what they want to be all up in arms on. And that's what they want to spend all their time thinking through and talking through and fighting through. (laughs) And it's not actually anything they are facing in their day-to-day lives. And I think there's part of it that we are responsible to be concerned with what's actually happening around us. And how do we have, I guess if we're going to use your phrase, right? Like how do we have kingdom values in relation to what is actually happening in our lives? Because um, Jesus never called us to step in and like overthrow our governments and completely change all of the systems that are happening around us. He called us to be very real and very present within the circles of influence that we're already existing in. And yeah, a lot of those things cross over from a political standpoint, from a policy standpoint. Um, But we get far too concerned with these big issues that aren't even impacting us every day. Right. Like we need to move past like just talking points. And although I think the the way that, you know, because the public discourse is happening all around us where you turn on the news and you watch either Fox News or MSNBC and you get two completely different stories. Or you scroll through Twitter or you're on Facebook and people are being crazy in the Facebook group. I think it's important to address the ideas that are being shared there because a lot of, you know, our own ilk in the evangelical community is actually arguing against things like like economic justice or racial justice or um, the the necessary steps to remedy some of those things as, as you know being you know woke or whatever it might be like we need to move away from all of that language and not be formed by our Facebook groups and our uh, news intake like we need to turn off those those news sources sometimes and actually just get a a kingdom vision for uh, the kind of impact. Um, that Jesus is calling us to have on the world, like the kind of like, what does it look like to be salt and light? It means to preach Jesus. Yes. First and foremost, centrally, but in the tangible ways, like how are we being hospitable? How are we uh, bringing about reconciliation on a personal level and um, advocating for it on a, in a, on a social level? Or um, how are we caring for the needs of the people within our own sphere of, community and then how are we also for um, community or societal uh, solutions that will help to remedy that on a larger scale and so I think it's not entirely unimportant to talk about some of those talking points but if that's where we stay then we're not doing anything but just talking and so um, we definitely need to, need to live these things out personally and also engage with the ideas that can uh push us one way or the other um, to create an alignment with kingdom values um, to bring about redemption and renewal wherever we can. Yeah. So at the end of the day, uh, the words we use uh, to describe like what we're about as Christians, like those words are important, but they aren't nearly as important as like what we do, uh, not only to verbally affirm the message of the gospel, but embody it in our community engagement, in the way that people experience us personally, and even in our uh, political advocacy. Um, And our community engagement and political advocacy, it can never come at the expense of our verbal proclamation of the gospel. Uh, But if what we're proclaiming about the gospel is true, that 
it, it brings about redemption and renewal, then the proof of that is in the way that it transforms. And it not only transforms us as individuals, but it transforms us as a community. And so we need to keep those things in balance. Um, and we do have to keep in mind that that like no matter how much progress we make in any one generation, like we're never marching forward to utopia if we just do the right things if we just advocate for the right things if we just sign the right petitions if we just vote for the right things if we just give to the right organizations that eventually will reach utopia because that's not going to happen because uh, progress is more circular than it is linear and we're while we're responsible you know to move redemption forward in any way that we can in our own generation we have to understand that the full redemption isn't coming until jesus comes back and so you know it's just not going to happen on our own strength but that doesn't mean that we aren't called to be transformed by the spirit to these values that will push it in that direction um and i think at the end of the day we just need to be reminded of uh, paul's words in first corinthians 15 it's one of my my favorite verses where he says that we should always be abounding in the work of the lord knowing that in the lord our labor isn't in vain so we should labor in faith do what we can to bring about redemption and renewal Ultimately, knowing that it's not going to be ultimate uh, in in what we're able to accomplish, but we are waiting for Jesus to bring back that full redemption. But even as we're working, we are providing a foretaste of what is to come in the here and now. Thanks for listening to the Kainos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kynosproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. A crazy world out there, moms and dads. I'm Katherine Seegers, host of Christian Parent Crazy World, the podcast that tackles tough topics to help you be a godly parent in an ungodly world. Subscribe at lifeaudio.com.